Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 893. On this edition of the podcast, we of course must discuss the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays, who are tied through two World Series games. First up, Ben Clemens and Tony Wolf talk about the Dodgers. What got into Corey Seager? What exactly is the pitching plan? And what is up with Dustin May? Dustin May's had a lot of kind of off nights in these playoffs. He gave up six hard hit balls in eight batters face last night. Yeah. Which isn't good, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's not what you'd like. After that, Jay Jaffe and Eric Longenhagen discussed the Rays and the legend of Randy Arena. What was the scouting report on him before this year? What is his future like as a player? And what exactly spurred this transformation? It's not like I expected this. Nobody could have expected, yeah, this guy's going to get sick. And then while he's hanging out with nothing to do, he's going to get jacked. (laughs) And then he's going to hit And then hit a home run every 11 plate appearances. (laughs) Fangraphs Audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. Your memberships and donations allow us to do everything we do, from the website to the podcast. And we are endlessly appreciative. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Ben Clemens. This is Tony Wolf. And Tony, what is up with the Dodgers pitching in this World Series? <laughs> yeah, you you've kind of seen the uh, their relative strength and uh, weakness as compared to the Rays. You know, the Dodgers have some guys with a little bit more experience, guys who are used to pitching deep into games like Clayton Kershaw, uh, yeah. but then they don't really have the you know five or six or seven lights out arms at the back end of the bullpen to get you through a nine inning game in the first couple games of the series they've had to do one of each you know Clayton Kershaw looked really really good in game one and then in game two Tony Gonsolin faced six hitters (laughs) instead of uh, throwing six innings and the guys who followed had uh, mixed results we'll say. So do you think they were just planning on pulling Gonsolin the whole time? It kind of looked like it. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. I got. It's hard to get a gauge on how much of a set plan there is with uh, David Roberts. You know, yeah, to Gonsolin, Gonsolin faced six hitters. He wasn't, but he wasn't really, you know, in trouble. He'd already given up a home run and, and a walk. He didn't look, you know, dominant by any means, but he wasn't really in trouble and even guys that they brought in after him you know Victor Gonzalez only threw 10 pitches before they took him out and replaced him with Dustin May uh with two outs I think in the fourth inning it was and I mean if you're looking to get dominance out of Tony Gonsolin something's already gone wrong in your plan yes if if he faces six batters and allows two base runners it's, it's not great but it's not terrible he didn't look awful by any means no, and I think, you know, especially in the start of a series, granted the World Series, you finally have off days again, which is something these teams haven't gotten in previous series. They just threw seven days in a row, both of them, last week. So, yeah, you would think that there would be a little bit more incentive to try and get the most out of whoever you have starting. Granted, Tony Gosselin was pitching on just two days rest. You weren't going to see him throwing five or six innings regardless. But Right, you know, so he maybe... threw, what was it, Saturday night? Yeah, yeah. or no, Sunday. It, was, it would have been game seven. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. He threw game seven. So, I mean, that doesn't help, but surely he had more than six guys in his arm. He didn't throw that long 
in game seven, as I recall. Yeah, and I don't I think he only threw about thirty he threw forty he threw forty one pitches on Sunday, and then I think he only threw about thirty yesterday. So it wasn't even like he had been you know, it wasn't like Tyler Glass now on Tuesday where he was throwing eight pitches seemingly to every single hitter. So right. yeah, it was a it was a really aggressive hook and you know, it didn't it wasn't a, a disaster for the Dodgers by any means. They stayed in the game. They only lost by two. Uh, they got some good appearances. Alex Wood looked good late. Victor Gonzalez pitched well. But when you're using that many pitchers, one or two guys having an off night will derail you. And that's sort of what happened with uh, Dustin May. Yeah, Dustin May's had a lot of kind of off nights in these playoffs. He gave up six hard hit balls in eight batters face last night. Yeah. Which isn't good, you know? <laughs> it's not what you'd like. The way that they've used him in these playoffs is weird. I'm looking at his playoff game log here, and he's thrown two innings in the first game of the DS. With a day of rest, he threw an inning. With three days of rest, he threw an inning and two-thirds. Another three days of rest, another two innings. Another day of rest, another inning. Another two days of rest. And then last night's performance. And I know that they're not treating him like a starter, you know, largely because... Actually, three of these have been starts, but they've been kind of opener-y starts. But I just don't get why they can't make one of Gonsolin or May a starter and one a reliever rather than kind of going to this half-half blend. I would probably default to making Gonsolin the starter and May the reliever, but that's like kind of cheating based on the fact that May was terrible last night. Yeah, you know, I talked a little bit about this last night in my, in my recap that I wrote of Game 2, and Pedro Moore at The Athletic also wrote something similar earlier today where it's, I don't think it's inherently wrong of a manager to not have super defined rules for his pitching staff. You know, you've seen some teams like the Rays do very well with guys not having set roles necessarily, but you do wonder after this, you know, after we've gotten this deep into the postseason, whether the, this uncertain, usage of Gonsolin and May has had an impact on both of them considering you know they both started or were used as a follower the whole regular season they're both rookies they aren't super experienced arms and you know like you said you know some days Dustin May is the seventh inning guy some days he's the fourth or fifth inning guy sometimes he's a starter but he's throwing on like two or three days rest so he doesn't. Re- you don't really know if is he going to throw one inning? Are they going to let him try to go three? You know, and it's similar with with Gonsolin. You know, he gets his first ever World Series start, and it comes on two days rest, and no one really knows. Right. I'm sure he had a better idea maybe than than we did what was going to be expected of him. But you know, as a, if you're a rookie and you're in these situations for the first time, it's probably pretty difficult to try and get acclimated to that constantly shifting role that you have and i i just it seems like it's had an adverse effect on on both of them yeah i agree i mean julio arias seems to have handled it better and he's actually basically may's age because he was so young when he came up but he's had a long time getting used to this role and kind of getting you know swung around randomly in the playoffs whereas i have to assume this is the first time gonsolin's really done this and May, I believe, briefly did this last year, but it's not really the same. Yeah, no, and <laughs> and it's also, because of the shortened season, it's also hard to sometimes remember that this is, you know, we're not, we weren't necessarily talking about a full season of these rookies being as impressive as they were, where basically we would be in 
around we'd be we'd be approaching the all-star break soon right. in in a regular season so like they have we had we didn't get a huge sample size of these guys being super dominant in the regular season we don't know that much about them yet as compared to you know guys like Orius and and another guy so yeah it's it's tough to know whether what exactly has been responsible for them regressing like this whether it was something that was maybe always going to happen as the as right. advanced scouting departments got more looks at them and and figured them out better or if it is if it does have something to do with it being the postseason and the usage and that sort of thing yeah whenever i watch may pitch i'm struck by the fact that he's very enjoyable to watch pitch especially with the offset camera angle that everyone loves now it makes his sinker look like it moves even more yeah but he just doesn't miss that many bats and that is just like a weird dichotomy where i don't know that there's a pitcher in the dodgers who has more gifable stuff essentially but i do think that he's their fifth or sixth best starter and that's kind of an interesting like split i don't exactly know how to think about it but this is weird to me that if you just followed like the highlights and the crazy pitches and the fact that he has you know 20 inches of horizontal run or whatever, you would think, why don't they just make this guy like part of their big three with Kershaw and Bueller? But then you watch him pitch and you're like, why don't they just shelve him and just use the other guys? Yeah, uh, Dustin Bay would be a hard guy to explain to someone like watching baseball for the first time because, yeah, you you watch his pitches and they they're a hundred miles an hour and they're basically breaking from like one batter's box yeah. over to the other. Yeah. This guy throws seemingly. the best pitches in baseball. And also he's terrible. <laughs> and also he gives up like home runs on 20% of the fly balls he allows. And he is yeah. one of the worst strikeout arms on this Dodger staff. Um, yeah. And he can look really good. You know, he's had, I mean, the, his first appearance of the postseason against the Padres, he was, he threw two innings. He struck out three batters, didn't allow anybody on base. He, he's, he can look really really impressive but he if he's not missing bats if he's if he's not getting those swings and misses that he can have a hard time finding somehow batters just are able to square him up yeah batters are just really good these days yeah <laughs> baseball pitching is seemingly impossible and also if you watch someone like Dustin May throw you also feel like hitting has to be I don't know how anybody I don't know how anybody hits Dustin May just watching him but yeah they do and yet like you said six of the eight balls that got hit off of them were hard if they Dodgers had this to do again they might have planned it differently because their offense was fine I think that they they knew they had a disadvantage coming into this game which makes a lot of sense the the Rays were pitching Blake Snell who is probably not a true talent signing winning pitcher but is definitely a true talent, one of the best 20 or 30 pitchers in baseball. And him going up against a bullpen game, I don't think the Dodgers really expected to win this game, but if they knew they were going to score four runs and they knew that they'd score some runs off the tough part of the bullpen, I, I think they might have managed this differently. Yes, I think that if we, we don't need to get into the race too much, but I think this definitely was a, a bit of a, a must win for the for Tampa Bay just because of the fact that they had they'd fallen behind in this series and they did have an opportunity to throw maybe their best starter against a Dodgers team that just planned to bullpen this whole game. So this was like this is a game that the Rays definitely needed to win and they fortunately were able to come away with it. But yeah, the I 
I don't really know what the answer is for the Dodgers in a game like this because, or what I would have done differently. I should I should say let's. Yeah, the I'll, answer would just be like for the some of these guys to pitch better. It seems like, which is you know you can't make that happen. Yeah, and it's it's it is weird. You know, we've the Dodgers coming into the season had more starter worthy arms i think than nearly any other team especially with may and gonsolin breaking out you know they they had ross stripling at at the beginning of the year you know before david price opted out they had him in the rotation and then all of a sudden (laughs) we get to the world series and you look at this rotation and you get and you go okay so there's clayton kershaw and walker bueller and julio urias is going to probably give you five innings maybe in whatever he does and then after that who knows maybe you have Dustin maybe you have Dustin May throw 40 or 50 pitches and Tony Gonsolin throw 40 or 50 pitches and then if one of those things goes wrong all of a sudden Joe Kelly is coming into the game in like the fifth and you're like this didn't work out the way that they were <laughs> that they uh, hoped it would yeah one thing that I, I wonder about, although I don't know if this is just hindsight thinking, is Kenley Jansen, Blake Trinan, and Bruce Dark Gratterall haven't pitched in the World Series. Jansen hasn't pitched since Saturday, and he only threw six pitches then. Trinan and Gratterall pitched on Sunday, but they're going to be they're going to have four off days before they even have a chance to pitch on Friday. Those are their three best bullpen arms, I think. I think you could maybe quibble with whether Victor Gonzalez counts right now, because he, he seems to be on at the moment. But the Dodgers were down, what, two runs uh three nothing sorry when may entered and that just doesn't feel like a game that's lost so i get that their plan was to get some bulk from may but if you had taken may's innings out of this game and replaced them i guess he only threw one and a third because he got hit so hard but if you replaced them with some innings from jansen and trinan and kind of did a raise thing where you're like well we're down two nothing when we're bringing in may Let's just use our good relievers and see what happens. You know, the Rays brought in Nick Anderson as their first reliever into the game yesterday. If the Dodgers had done that, I wonder if this would have turned out differently. Yeah, I mean, four outs isn't isn't a lot to replace with uh, yeah. with, with guys like Jansen. Right. I think presumably they thought they were getting more than four outs out of May. Yes, for sure. For sure. And they also were comfortable using Alex Wood for a couple innings yesterday. And so you wonder if, you know, especially with, with the lefties at the top of Tampa Bay's batting order, if... if you would have rather seen somebody like Wood come into the game at, at that earlier stage instead of having Dustin May try and pitch to Austin Meadows and Brandon Lau, who hit the two-run homer off of May uh, there in the fifth. So Yeah, I guess I am wrong, by the way. They were only down one nothing when May entered. He just gave up Victor Gonzalez's earned run. He inherited that runner, and he scored. So one nothing game with... Yeah, runner on first and two outs. That's a pretty high leverage situation. I don't think it would have been crazy to have, you know, Trinan in there for, I don't know, plan on having him face three or four batters and then go to May. But I I do see that maybe Dave Roberts was worried that he didn't want to use his good bullpen arms, bring in May late, have May not have it, and lose after using all the good arms. So maybe he was just saying, I'm going to throw May. If he's bad, he's bad. And I use the back of the bullpen, which is absolutely what he did last night. You know, Joe Kelly got extended run, Wood pitched, Jake McGee pitched. And Jake McGee has been like on a milk carton through these playoffs. <laughs> 
And then if May had been good, maybe he would have gone, you know, the the front of the bullpen, as it were, Jansen and Trinan. Yeah, I also wonder, I mean, at, at a certain point, you also wonder how many runs the Dodgers are, how many runs Roberts expects out of his lineup. Because if you, even, you also have to figure, you know, if, even if he does fall behind by, you know, three or four in the middle innings, like you said before, that's not a lost cause for this offense by any means. So yeah, at a certain, at a certain point you wonder is, is he comfortable pretty much allowing May or whoever it is to just eat innings as, as well as he can, you know, he was getting hit really hard last night. So it wasn't really, it just wasn't, attainable to have him stick it out through that game but i i do wonder if if he was giving up more soft contact even if he was still giving up base runners or needing to throw a lot of pitches yeah if the results were the same if he gave up you know the same earned runs you're saying but without the loudness of contact yeah i wonder if he would have been if he would have just stuck with him for maybe another inning or so and just tried to say, you know what, we have to score to win this game anyway. We're going to have to score a few runs regardless. So let's, we're, we're trying to get the pitching staff through this game and bridge the gap to Bueller in game three on Friday. So, yeah. and the Dodgers did, you know, they, they came back and scored four runs. They had the tying run at the plate, I should say, as late as the eighth inning. So they were able to, to score enough to stay in this game. It just, you know, the Rays, the Rays bullpen was just too good late. Yeah. This was a, a weird offensive performance for the Dodgers. They scored four runs, but they didn't look as good as a team that scored four runs. They hit three home runs, basically, and did nothing else. Uh, they struck out 15 times. That's bad. You shouldn't do that. But that's kind of the way the Dodgers lineup works, is they can get five hits, which is how many hits they got in this game, and score four runs, because like, who in their lineup doesn't have power? Well, and the other nice thing is I, I saw somebody bring this up last night. Even when the Dodgers aren't hitting, even when they can't square somebody up like they were struggling so much to against Blake Snell last night, they're still able to work the count. They, they're still able to work long at-bats and draw walks so that even if they aren't, you know, making the kind of contact that, you know, the Rays were against May there in the middle innings, they can still keep the pressure on Snell by making him walk guys and making him him throw a lot and that's that also is a big help when you know their first hit of the game got them two runs because yeah. uh Blake Snell walked the number eight hitter in front of Chris Taylor with two outs in the in the fifth inning and he made one mistake with a curveball that he tried to backdoor and caught too much of the plate and Taylor hit it out so that's that that is another way that the Dodgers can just get you is they they don't necessarily even if it is it is you know nice to be able to to hit home runs and not have to worry so much about stacking up hits but it, it isn't as though they're not stacking up base runners they're just doing so with walks and yeah. extended counts and putting pressure on that way getting four walks against Blake Snell the way he was pitching last night is impressive too because Snell was really on yeah and the Dodgers are just good at you know facing guys who are on and taking the right pitches and swinging at the right pitches. Admittedly, he did walk Bellinger on four pitches and Max Muncy on five for two of those four walks. So it wasn't exclusively that the Dodgers are just great at taking walks. Like Snell does this sometimes. Mm -hmm. But the Dodgers are very willing to accept that. And I think that, like you said, it puts a floor on their offense. Their offense is floored a bunch of different ways. 
They had they had enough home runs that it's hard to shut them out. They walk a lot. It's hard to imagine them getting completely shut down. Just ever? Yeah, I mean, Blake Snell, Blake Snell looked as good as I've seen him look all year last night. I mean, he really, his slider was insane. He had good command. He wasn't as, as wild as he's been in other starts. He wasn't really, he was a lot more efficient than he's been in other starts. He only had 62 pitches through four innings, I think. He pitched as, as well as I've seen anyone yeah you know, look against the Dodgers through those first four and two thirds innings. And he still didn't get out of the fifth. <laughs> he still gave yeah. up a bunch of, uh, you know, a few walks and gave up a home run. So it's like, you know, obviously if you're the race, you feel good about a game two win regardless, but as you, you also kind of have to wonder if they're like, okay, how, what is the, is that the, just the ceiling that we can expect out of a starter in this series? Because Blake Snell looked incredible and he didn't get through five innings. Yeah. And if I told you Mookie Betts didn't have a hit, Cody Bellinger didn't have a hit, Max Muncy didn't have a hit, and Justin Turner went one for four, and the Dodgers scored four runs against, you know, Blake Snell, Nick Anderson, Pete Fairbanks, and Diego Castillo, you'd be like, oh, wow. <laughs> Something's worked out incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, having Corey Seager just demolish everything he sees right now is a pretty big boost. It's crazy how just how many hitters the Dodgers have. Obviously, they their lineup is is incredible, and we've known that for for years now. But Corey Seager just all year has been hitting everything hard. He went from in the bottom half in baseball in a hard hit rate last year, according to StatCast, to the 98th percentile and hard hit rate this year. And so he's been doing this all year, even as he's, you know, kind of missed time here and there with injuries. And he's now, he now has the most home runs in a single postseason for any shortstop ever. So yeah, when you have, you know, sometimes all it takes is one or two guys in your lineup to be just crazy locked in. The Rays have had that with Randy Orozarena all postseason. And and right now, Corey Seager is that guy that you just, it just doesn't ever look like a good idea to throw him a strike. Yeah, I wonder if the lesson there is just that we forgot how good Corey Seager was. Like in 2016 and 2017, he looked like he might be one of the best shortstops in baseball. And then he got hurt in 2018. And played a limited schedule as he recovered in 2019. And he was still good. He was still worth 3.3 wins. He was still a good hitting shortstop. But I think we kind of lowered his ceiling from MVP guy to all-star in good years. And it kind of looks like he might have just been hurt, which wouldn't be a surprise. He missed all of 2018, basically. He had 100 plate appearances that year. But it, it has been really impressive to see him just start crushing everything. Yeah, I wonder, I really wonder what, what their plans are going to be for him long term, because he, his contract ends uh, after 2021, uh, yeah. which coincidentally happens to be the same time that right now Francisco Lindor and Carlos Correa and Trevor Story and Javier Baez all have their contracts run out. So I wonder, I wonder how much this season and this postseason in particular have maybe changed the Dodgers' plans, whether they had possibly hoped that in one of those later, you know, a couple years down the line, if they had previously hoped to maybe let Seeker walk and replace him with Lindor or one of those other shortstops. And after this year, are maybe thinking, oh, maybe Corey Seeker 
is potentially the best out of all of them. I don't know. Yeah, I do think that they're a lot more likely to keep him, not because of his playoff explosion, but just because he looks healthy again. Yes. And the Dodgers, aside from Mookie, have generally been in favor of re-signing their own guys. They've done more research on them, and that seems to make them a lot more comfortable with going after them. That makes a lot of sense. I think that teams who have proven good performers keeping them is a, a pretty solid thing to do because you'll often get a bit of a discount and also you know you have a lot better look at their data basically and you can say oh like i think this guy deserves it or oh i don't think this guy deserves it but that's a question for a future year i think the question for game three is just going to be can they back up bueller enough and i am pretty confident i think i would still take the dodgers to win this series you know straight up but I have a lot more questions after last night, just because if you ask Dodgers fans what their nightmare was for this World Series, well, they would say getting swept. But if you ask Dodgers what their nightmare concept was for this World Series, it would probably involve Dave Roberts having to make a lot of tough bullpen decisions. And I mean, here we are. (laughs) Yeah, Bueller hasn't... uh, You definitely want Bueller to pitch deep into this into this next game i think even with the rest that trinan and gratterall and jansen all have Baez has only thrown one inning i think in this series too so i i even with the rest they all have i think you definitely want bueller to be able to give you you know six six innings in this coming game he did that in game six of the of the nlcs he threw six shutout innings against the braves and i think that is that's going to be really important because Julio Urias hasn't really pitched deep into in, into games. And even if you have Kershaw going in game five, you're still looking at another weird Dustin May. You don't really want to stretch Kershaw too much. Yeah, you'd, you're still looking at another Dustin May, Tony Gonsolin, you know, weird hybrid start at, at some point later in the series, most likely. So getting... Bueller to do his job and and make it make it a short day on the bullpen on Friday seems like a really really important task. So I'll put you on the spot here for a final question. And of course this is basically frivolous and we don't have any view into the future. But let's say that Bueller pitches five innings tomorrow, exactly five innings. Do the Dodgers win? Are their chances of winning higher than fifty percent? Yes, because I think I just think straight up the the Dodgers have a better than 50% chance of winning on pretty much any given day plus I don't I with how Kevin Cash has managed his bullpen I don't really expect Charlie Morton to last longer than five innings even if he I mean he Charlie Morton might have like a no-hitter going and still might get pulled after five innings with the way that Cash has managed him so I still take the Dodgers offense over the Rays in in the late innings of a game but what that means what a five innings or less start out of Walker Bueller on Friday means for the Dodgers in games four and five uh, might be a might be a different thing yeah I'm totally with you I think if I'd said four innings I might start to favor the Rays because that means he's been hit hard but at five I think I like the Dodgers chances but I guess we're just gonna have to wait and see and you know, enjoy the rest of this World Series, which has been off to a great start. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a fun one, and I I really I really wouldn't be surprised to see this go the distance after after what we've seen previously in this postseason. Yeah, agreed. All right, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today, Tony. I'm Ben Clemens. This is Tony Wolf, and we will be watching the rest of this series carefully because it's been a great one so far. 
Hello, this is Jay Jaffe from Fangraphs Audio. It seems like every postseason we see some unknown player step to the fore and make himself into a household name. This year, it's Randy Arozarena, the Tampa Bay Rays designated hitter and left fielder, who became the first rookie position player to win an LCS MVP award and who has hit seven home runs, one short of the single-year postseason record. He's also just two total bases away from tying the record in that department as well. And yes, this is the product of the expanded postseason format, but it's still impressive nonetheless. At best, the now 25-year-old Rose Arena has been regarded as a fringe prospect until now, something of a tweener with not enough bat for a corner spot and not enough glove for center. What I learned in digging into his season and his career for a recent piece at Fangraphs is the extent to which he's evolved as a prospect and the fact that our own Eric Longenhagen had a higher evaluation of him than just about anyone else in the industry. So I'm here with Eric, and uh, we're going to talk some Randy. Hey, how's it going, Jay? So tell us a bit about what you've observed in a Rose Arena, and how that evaluation has changed over the years. When he first came over from Cuba, and this was during a time when the last deluge of players came over from Cuba, because at some point... We went from the older El Duque era guys to the in the middle of their prime, Yoana Cespedes types, down into the early 20s Puig, Rosarena types, and then on down to the teenagers now. Like almost all of the mature ballplayers are off the island at this point, and only the ones who are coming up at 16, 17 are the ones that we are learning about consistently now. And so Rosarena came towards like the middle back of that timeline. And at that time was viewed as maybe he's a second baseman. If not, it's center field or left field in some capacity. It was a skill set pretty similar to Eric Young Jr.'s, like that type of profile where there is maybe not enough, like there has to be enough bat-to-ball skills for him to be anything at all because other than speed, the other tools are pretty middling. And then with the well, he signed with the Cardinals, and they sent him out as an outfielder only. And then, yeah, you mentioned it up until through the 2018 season. He was considered by Kylie McDaniel and myself as like a Guillermo Heredia type of prospect. Like mm-hmm. this is a right-handed hitting outfielder who is okay in center, better in a corner, not enough power to play in the corner. And the frame is on the smaller side, so... You're not necessarily confident in projecting all of that power. And then like a year went by and Rosarena hit really, really well at the upper levels. And then the evaluations started to straddle the good fourth outfielder, low end regular or strong everyday player line, like right in that area, which is like a 45, 50 future value area, which is basically like the back of the top 100 on the high end and the next tier of guys behind it on the low end. At least that is the reports that, you know, I had sourced for, for our site. And then, yeah, then he had COVID. He was, you know, he was traded to the Rays and he got COVID. He holed up in his hotel room for a couple of weeks. He put on like 10 or 15 pounds of muscle. And now there is like another full grade of measurable raw power here. And the contact skills that he had displayed throughout 2019, he retained those and suddenly had above average raw power. And so now what you have is a guy who I think is an impact regular. Like he was on the top 100 entering the season before all this happened, but now I've got him like firmly in the in the middle of it, in the in the 40s, because this is, in my opinion, like an above average everyday player now, someone who has a chance to like 
make some all-star teams. So it's been a strange journey. It's strange a lot of times, especially for this class of Cuban players that Rosarian was part of. The cultural adjustment for many of them was difficult, and the level of success has been highly volatile from this class. There is almost no in-between. It is it is boomer bust with this era of uh, Cuban signee. And yeah, it's been interesting to see this guy go boom for the last couple months. Yeah. So, okay. So he had COVID-19, but this coincides with his uh, learning to cook for himself and then doing this 300 push-up a day regimen and putting on something like 12 to 15 pounds of muscle mass. He must not have had a strong case of it or maybe an asymptomatic case. Do you know much about that? No, nothing about the specifics of Okay. Really, other than Eduardo Rodriguez, no one's symptoms from, right. oh, I guess Freddie Freeman's too, we know were pretty severe. Yeah, right. But yeah, I don't know specifically regarding a Rose Reina. I assume that if, if, you're, if you're doing like 300 push-ups a day, that you probably yeah. feel okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess that that's, that's quite a contrast there because, uh, you know, as somebody who, who can only do a handful of push-ups a day, let's just say, 300 a day seems like a lot and would certainly get me breathing heavily. And I know, we know that COVID uh, has a big impact on the respiratory system. And it's just this totally random thing, right? Like, this this is not a thing anyone – I mean, you mentioned, yeah, like, Fangraphs, we slash I, we were higher on this guy than – everybody else but it's not like i expected this nobody could have expected yeah this guy's gonna get sick and then while he's hanging out with nothing to do he's gonna get jacked (laughs) and then he's gonna hit and then hit a home run every 11 plate appearances (laughs) (laughs) so yeah you certainly can't knock people for not projecting that and then you know like the race system is deep and so if you had the low end evaluation on him then he ends up getting put behind so many guys that, yeah, in a system like that with so much depth, he's going to fall 10, 15 spots below where where I had him. But, but yeah, ultimately it's about, for me, so much of what I've learned in doing this and like, feel, you know, it sucks when you're wrong about a guy. And so the prospect publication, like Industrial Complex, has just <laughs> most often been wrong about guys who can hit and that's the thing that they do. And, you know, LeMahieu is that way. And Rosarena is that way, and Jose Ramirez is that way, and Marcus Semyon was that way. And it's just consistent that these smaller framed guys who are like 5'10, 5'11, but have good bat to ball skills, especially ones who play really hard like a Rosarena does. And to prepare for this, I went back and looked at an old Cardinals list, and a Rosarena was too low on that one. Like I had him behind a bunch of other outfielders who were toolsier, but just didn't hit as well. And Tommy Edmond was right there with him. And it's guys with feel to hit, good baseball instincts, and they play hard. And just more often than not, those are the guys who, as an industry, we have consistently been wrong about. Because when we get into see players, the guys who stand out are the 6'3", big-framed guys. Right. And some of those some of those players pan out in, in a huge way, right? Like part of the reason Fernando Tatis and A-Rod and Carlos Correa and Manny Machado have the skills they do is because they have that frame and they have those tools that just explode off the field at you. And so it's not like I stop looking for that stuff, but the guys who can hit Corey Dickerson's of the world, like they just play forever. And so, yeah, like to me coming off of the 2019 season, that's what a Rosarander was. And the scouts loved him. They loved how hard he played, uh, how competitive he was and his field to hit was great. And that just, you know, I'm, I'm buoying those guys more than I used to. And he he's an example of that. 
Uh-huh. So this is interesting, uh, you know, talking about the Cardinals. What's going on with their evaluations? It seems like, you know, between Rose Arena and, and Luke Voigt, for example, they've made a couple of, uh, it seems like, fairly glaringly bad decisions on who to keep and, and who to trade. And, and you know, the Voigt one, I mean, they could have saved themselves a, a considerable boatload of talent as well as, uh, you know, $140 million of investment if they'd seen what they had in right. Voigt instead of going out and trading for Goldschmidt and signing him to a long-term deal. Yeah. And I heard John Moselyak's comments on why they moved Rosarena. And again, they did have what I also perceived to be a lot of upper-level outfield depth with O'Neal and Bader and Justin Williams at one point looked like he might be a piece. Jose Adolis Garcia, another Cuban guy, had some really strong years in the mid-upper levels of the minors and had bigger tools in a Rosarena. Dylan Carlson and like, you know... So I I get it, but again, this is the guy who could hit. And then the Voight thing is interesting because he has clearly also undergone a physical transformation of his own since joining the Yankees, although he was already good before, like he was good as as a chubby Yankee, you know, like now he's kind of svelte and... Right, yeah, he's lost some weight and muscled out a little bit. The Yankees did this with a lot of guys. They they got McBroom from Toronto, they got uh, Garrett Cooper from Colorado, or was it Milwaukee maybe? I forget. Just guys who were performing at the upper levels of the minors but played a corner position and were older, and so a lot of the model-driven teams were probably devaluing them. And they're just the type of first base bat that is great to have on your club during their pre-arb years. And they traded McBroom. They got something for him. They traded Cooper and got something for him and just kept the best of those three guys, and it's Voight. And so now Voight is, you know, a real dude. And so I credit the Yankees more than I knocked the Cardinals for that one because at the time they got Goldschmidt, he was the best first baseman in baseball, and he's still really good. And I could see how you're an NL team, and given what Voigt was like physically at that time, how you might go, eh, that's a DH, and we can't roster that guy. And so, like, I get some of it. It's tough. Like, everybody's going to make bad trades. And the Cardinals' upper-level depth that they've created through good drafting is part of the reason that they've had so many of these guys to ship away. But ideally, they are consolidating them for like bigger pieces rather than losing some of them for for very little. Right. Okay, fair enough. Back to a Rose Arena. To me, along with the backstory, what I find interesting in looking over the production, you know, and taking this, we've got a relatively small sample size. So looking at the production in terms of not just the regular season, but also the postseason, he's produced home runs at such a high rate, despite not really hitting a lot of fly balls that regularly. Based on the data, he's got an eight degree, eight degree average launch angle. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I did a scatter plot, uh, which which is in my piece showing the home runs per batted ball plotted against average launch angle of of all batted balls. The closest points to him, I thought this was interesting, and you might get a kick out of this 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 selection here: Bobby Dahlbeck, Giancarlo Stanton, mm. Edwin Rios, and Nelson Cruz. Jeez. Which is like guys with like at least 70 grade raw power, right? Yeah. But also, you know, a fair number of ground balls. I thought was, to me that was that was really illuminating. And I just wanted to wanted to get your impression of that peer group that I came up with there, just just looking looking at that small sample of data. Yeah. I think it's it would be foolish to say that a Rosarena belongs with those guys from a raw power standpoint. Right. I do think that the type of pitch I mean, we've, we've, they've talked about it on the broadcast. This guy is crushing fastballs, and he's particularly well-suited for hitting fastballs at the top of the strike zone. And what we see in the playoffs is a lot of teams whose pitchers operate there, 
because these are the teams who over the last five years or so have been at the forefront of understanding how advantageous that is from a swinging strike perspective. They've got the backspinning fastball guys who work at the top of the zone. And so you could argue that part of the reason Rosarena has done so well in the, in the postseason is because these teams just have the types of pitchers more often who he is suited to do damage against. I'm actually going into my, you know, I've got some behind the scenes minor league data from 2019 to see what's going on here. I have the his average and max exit velocities on the board, but I don't have the launch angles up there or any of some of the launch angle associated data. So I'm actually going to pull that up right now to compare. But yeah, eight degrees of launch is close to big league average and the highest average launch angle that you're likely to see from a player who has like sustainable bat to ball skills is like 20 degrees. That is like Brandon Moss. Mm -hmm. And oh, who was the guy who played second base for the Padres for a year who had like 25 dingers out of nowhere and then kind of went away? I'm forgetting his name. Yeah. The, the, is it Ryan Schimpf? Was that the That's guy? it. Schimpf. Yep. Schimpf. Yeah. A Rosarena had an average of six degrees of launch. Uh, it's actually a shade under that. It's a decimal okay, um, wow. in AAA with St. Louis. And 30% of the balls he put in play were launched between 10 and 30 degrees, which would have, you know, basically be a proxy for Welsh, you know, like line drives with some hump right. end and fly right. balls, but not pop-ups. And that's, right. that number's fairly low too. But his hard hit rate, 95 miles per hour and above, was 49%. Okay. And so that is on the 2080 scale. I have that mapped here in the sheet that via my math, that's a 65 on the 20 to 80 scale, which is, you know, so this guy was hitting the ball really, really hard last year, but not in the air. And so there's been a little bit more of that. But again, I think it might just be because of the subset of the pitching population that he's faced in October. That makes, it makes sense. I, you know, one thing I noticed when I was, when I was looking at the, you know, his pitch by pitch stuff is that he kind of struggled a little bit against cutters and the Dodgers have plenty of guys like that. Not only Kenley Jansen, who we haven't seen yet, but but also Bueller, Dustin May and Blake Trinan, all of whom have the cutter as at least a secondary pitch, if not if not a primary one. So it seems like they've, the Dodgers have been pitching him very carefully, three walks and, and just one infield single so far in, in, in nine plate appearances. The damage that he's done has been limited, but you know they're, they're, they haven't been getting him out that much either, though. It's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. This is like just looking at the team and the makeup of the roster, Meadows and DeRosarena and Adamas and Lau seem like the long-term cornerstone pieces. But Wander Franco and Vidal Brujan are both coming. They're both top 30 prospects, in my opinion. And they play some of those positions, too. And so some of this is going to have to give. And I think, you know, the non-tender situation this offseason is going to be weird. And a team like the Rays has typically non-tendered guys a little bit more aggressively than other clubs. And so I right. think there could be some roster turnover coming here for this for this team. But yeah, this is, just seems like another long-term cornerstone piece. I think this is sustainable. That's why I, I slid him up about 50 spots in the 100 a couple weeks ago. Yeah, neat. The pitching stuff is interesting too for the series. Strange to go from no off days to two off days in this series. And my feel for how to manage the pitching is now a little less intuitive than 
it would be had it been consistent the whole way through. It made more sense as I realized last night that they were going to have the off day today with as many relievers as the Dodgers especially were cycling through. Has anything struck you about the pitching deployment in the series so far? Yeah, I, you know, I was surprised. I was surprised, first of all, that, that Kevin Cash stayed with Tyler Glasnow as long as he did, 112 pitches or whatever, when, when he was clearly, you know, struggling a bit to find the zone and, and getting some, you know, what Dave Roberts calls some traffic on the bases. And, the, you know, and, and the Dodgers were just, you know, supremely able to take advantage of that once uh, once Mookie Betts drew that walk and then could just be a real pain in the in the butt for him and opened up that big inning with that journey around the bases. Hmm. So I didn't really I, I didn't really see the see why he was staying with him there when you know we, he had a, he had a quick hook with Charlie Morton in Game Seven of the ALCS uh, and I thought he had a pretty quick hook with with Blake Snell last night. Snell looked to me was just utterly dominant. I went back and and you know I know this is a guy who generally lives outside the strike zone. Thirty five percent of pitches in the zone. I think that was number three in the majors among starters this year, third lowest. But he was in the zone 48% of the time last night, which is pretty much on the high end for him. And when I looked back at all the non-opener or or bullpen starts uh, in this postseason, what I found was that when he was in the zone, he had the lowest expected WOBA on pitches in the zone of of any start this postseason at all, like 122. The Dodgers just weren't able to do a damn thing with even when he threw strikes. And it turns out he's actually got the second and third lowest in, in other starts as well. So that kind of that kind of stood out to me, and then the next two are Morton in Game Seven and Kershaw in this series as just guys who just been utterly able to dominate in the zone. So that that really struck me last night, and looking back at the data this morning, and I don't think I'd realized just you know quite it had been put it this way it had been a while since I'd seen just how dominant Blake Snell can be. Right. Yeah. He's he's one of those where. That stretch for the, during that Cy Young season where he just threw strikes for an abnormally long amount of time. And this seems to happen with, with a lot of players like this, where for weeks at a time, they can kind of get hot from a strike-throwing perspective and be dominant. And then other times, it's really frustrating to watch them struggle through four and two-thirds or you know yeah. five and a third, where they're throwing 110 pitches and, and walking four guys, but striking out 10 or whatever. So yeah, it was... I think that you can either believe Cash was left glass now in too long or pulled Snell too early, but not both. Because, you know, like part of the reason Glasnow was left in too long is because things started to unravel like they did last night on Snell. Then they continued to, whereas there was no opportunity for that with Snell. So, I mean, I know he was just so utterly dominant. But yeah, I agree with you on the Glasnow thing, especially at some point when it became clear they were not going to win that game. Then getting length from someone, which ended up being Fleming, became the priority. And you're just managing for the rest of the series uh, yeah. without the I was kind of surprised it wasn't Yarbrough there. You know, I mean, Yarbrough came in, but I'm surprised, you know, the, and I know that Ben Clemens wrote about this a little bit, but uh, it wasn't Yarbrough, a guy who gives, who can give starter length. But I guess I wonder if they're setting him up for, for a start uh, later in the series. Yeah, that was what Ben wrote. And and yeah, I mean, we now we've seen Yarbrough out of the pen. But, but yeah, it's fascinating to see how it's, it's getting done. There are so many like interchangeable pieces in that bullpen in particular, rather than the Dodgers where some of the roles are a little bit more defined, at least I assumed that they were up until last night, which was not like strange in a bad way. But, but yeah, now I think looking forward to the rest of the series, Kenley Jansen and Blake Trinan and Adam Kolarik and Brewstar Gratterall are all very well rested. None of them pitched right. in the first two games and now they've had an off day. And I think all three of those guys 
needed some amount of a break. And so now they've had an extended one. So it'll be interesting to see how those three relievers look for LA going forward. And then with Nick Anderson is just such an important linchpin to the way Tampa does things in the bullpen. He is the high leverage reliever, like whatever point of the game it is, here he comes. And he just hasn't been quite as like force of nature dominant like he was during the regular season for the past couple of years. He has seemed to have lost at least a little bit of, of juice here lately. So those are that's what I've got my eye on going on the rest of the way. Right. Here's one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I know it's it's been a topic of conversation on Twitter and and uh, I guess elsewhere within this podcast, is the usage of, of Tony Gonsolin and, and Dustin May, two guys who you had on your prospect lists and, and the way that uh, their seasons played out, I think a bit, a bit surprising in that May's the higher, the one with the higher pedigree, but it was Gonsolin's that turned out to be the one that was uh, more ready during the regular season. And, and I've, I've just been surprised at the way that these Guys have been sort of bounced around, opening, not really getting long to establish themselves and kind of struggling in these roles. And I know, you know, that maybe if they weren't struggling, they'd probably get longer to to show themselves off. But it's got to be sort of a, a frustrating cycle for them right now in that they're they're only getting to face a few batters or maybe not executing as well. And, and they're maybe looking over their shoulders, you know, to see just how, how long a leash they have. Yeah, I've talked about this before in other places and written about it. And the thing that people need to start to understand, I think about some of these pitchers like Dustin May, like Gratterall, like Sixto Sanchez, that some of these guys throw really, really hard and their fastballs just don't move in a way that is conducive of missing bats. And that doesn't mean that they're bad, but it does subject you to more ball and play variants. And there are just certain hitters who are more adept at hitting this type of sinking and tailing fastball. Uh, like, I'll, I'll never forget Cody Ross. Just seeing Cody Ross swing and thinking, you know, Roy Halladay's fastball just sort of runs right into how this guy's swing likes to work. Mm-hmm. And then two home runs later, that Phillies team was out of the playoffs at a, at a disappointing time. So I think some of that that is at play with May specifically. And then Gonsolin's just got a more switched on pitch mix where his changeup is also very good. They made some relevant changes to his delivery within the last year and a half, where he used to be extremely over the top and is now a little bit more right of center. From a release point perspective, I think it's created more two-plane break on his breaking ball. So that's why I think he was a little bit more ready. But yeah, I, I think that removing Gonsolin when they did was probably some gamesmanship to try to flip the script on a Rays team that likes to use matchups and right. take advantage of the off day, and it just didn't work. So... Yeah, I don't think it was an in-game decision. I think it was premeditated probably by several people who work for the Dodgers, not just Dave Roberts. Sure, sure. And uh, that, yeah, just did not work. Yeah. Well, it should be a very interesting series going forward. Where did you have this series in terms of uh, you know who you favored? And has that evaluation changed after we've seen two games? <sighs> I was thinking about this last night. My initial postseason prediction was the Dodgers over Tampa Bay in the World Series. So I'll just stick with that. I think having the three relievers I mentioned rested up is important. And the Nick Anderson stuff does kind of scare me for the Rays. But I do think that in general, the Rays bullpen is better. And it's sort of a wash overall as far as the pitching is concerned. It is, as I look across the Dodgers lineup still, that I see as good as a Rose Arena has been, as much as I like watching the Rays interchangeable pieces move around, Corey Seager is better than Willie Adamas, 
and Cody Bellinger is better than Kevin Kiermaier slash Manny Margot, and Justin Turner is better than you know Yandy Diaz slash whoever. So I'm just still betting on the Dodgers' star power, and I think it's going to be a six or seven game series, but that they come out on top. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Those those position player advantages do stand out. You know, the fact that the Dodgers have already banked one Kershaw, one good Kershaw start, I think, and and maybe uh, uh, kind of lightened his load. From a mental standpoint, I think probably also plays it plays into this. I had I didn't publish this, but I said privately to somebody Dodgers and six, and I think that still to me looks like the most likely outcome. Okay, well, thanks for having me on, Jay, and I hope that we get to. I mean, I'm excited to dive into offseason stuff with folks on the podcast the rest of the way, and I appreciate having me on the. I guess chest pound a little bit about Randy Rosarena. <laughs> Yeah, no, you were the you were the man to ask about this, and it, it was a lot of fun to look back and 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 see what you see what you'd written. I always get a get a good education, get up to speed really quickly by comparing year to year prospect evaluations, not just with you, but uh, elsewhere in what you what you called the prospect industrial complex. But uh, uh, to be able to highlight the home team on this one was was really cool. So uh, thanks for your insights on this, and thanks for our conversation for FanGraphs Audio. I'm Jay Jaffe. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program, consider an ad-free Fangraphs membership for yourself or as a gift. This is the best way to support us and keep the site running, and we truly could not do it without you. We will be back next week. Enjoy the rest of the World Series, and thank you for listening.